You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and today we have the second half of my recent conversation with Grace Barnes, whose new book is titled National Identity and the British Musical, From Blood Brothers to Cinderella. On today's conversation, we explore how British national identity has and often has not been dramatized in British musical theater. And among the topics we discuss are Blood Brothers, Mamma Mia, Billy Elliot, The Last Ship, the current smash hit six, and of course the tremendous impact and domination that the mega musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh have had on the British musical theater industry. We also discuss why UK critics so seldom give any serious consideration to musical theater, and also the absence of female voices in British musical theater. If you missed the previous episode, you may want to catch up with that before embarking on this one. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our patron club members. If you would like to help support the creation of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. died, never knowing that they shared one name, until the day they died, when her mother cried, my own dear sons, lie slain. And did you never hear of the mother, so cruel there's a stone in place of her heart? Then bring her on, and come, judge for yourselves how she came to play this part. So let's talk about Blood Brothers, because that's one of the centerpieces of your book. You have a whole chapter around it and come back to it time and again. What do you see as the significance of Blood Brothers in terms of this subject matter? Oh, I think it's hugely significant in that it sort of encapsulates a lot of things that I talk about. It came from that socialist tradition of plays with music. I mean, people who don't like musicals say, well, I like Blood Brothers because it's not a musical. Well, it is a musical. But it also drew on that tradition of folk music. When it premiered, Barbara Dixon, who played the lead, played Mrs. Johnson, was a well-known folk singer and made a name for herself around the folk bobs. Uh, and you can hear that sound. Once I had a husband, you know the sort of chap. I married him at a dance, and now we came on with the chat. Mary Johnson, I think you're a bleeding cracker. He said, my eyes were deep blue pools, my skin was soft as snow. He told me I was sexier than Madeline Monroe. And we went dancing. We went dancing. Then 
Plus I found that I was six weeks overdue What? We got married at the registry And then we had a do We had Kelly salmon sandwiches And how the ale did flow They said the bride was lovelier Than Marilyn Monroe And we went dancing But it was also absolutely the first musical, really, that was holding a government to account in the genre of musical theatre and was saying, in the way that at that time, it was the 80s, this was the Thatcher government, that plays were doing. But this is the first time a musical had actually gone, this is the result of your cuts, this is what it's doing to the working class, to the average working class person in Liverpool, which was a city which suffered enormously from the loss of industry, the loss of mining, the loss of trade, the loss of empire, you could argue. And Liverpool had been an enormously wealthy, prosperous, important city. And so for it to come out of Liverpool, for me, it would have been the same if it had come out of Glasgow, that it was a city that had been glorious and was now mired in social deprivation. And Willie Russell was holding up a mirror to society, but doing it through musical theatre, which had never been done. And I think that Billy Elliot wouldn't exist if Blood Brothers hadn't existed. Everybody's talking about Jamie wouldn't exist. I do feel that when you look at Girl from the North Country and compare it to Blood Brothers, you can see the similarities. It's going back to that socialist tradition of a play with music. I think Blood Brothers is enormously important. And I do to say in the book, it's the one musical that is on the school curriculum. So that if it's the only encounter that students have with a musical, it's Blood Brothers. It's still on the curriculum. It's on the curriculum in England. It's not on the curriculum in Scotland. I can't speak for Wales. And of course, as you point out, the major topic of British culture is class. And Blood Brothers is entirely about class or centers on the issues of class. And the theater it came from, Liverpool Everman, I mean, that was Liverpool, North of England, Scotland had this enormous tradition of socialist theater and Liverpool particularly. So Willie Russell was well versed in those techniques where narrator is breaking the fourth wall. The band is on stage. Mickey, don't shoot Eddie. He's your brother. You had a twin brother. I couldn't afford to keep both of you. His mother couldn't have kids. I agreed to give one of you away. Why didn't you give me away, Mum? I could have been him. I could have been him! And do we blame superstition for what came to pass? Or could it be what we the English have come to know as class? Did you ever hear the story of the Johnston twins? As like each other as two new pins. How one was kept and one given away. How they were born and they died on the self-same day. It was very John Littlewood 20 years later. There's a handful of other cities it could have come out of. It's like everybody's talking about Jamie could really only have come out of the north of England. The context of class is so important. Does that answer the question? I don't think it does. Absolutely. Maybe ironically, I'm not sure what the right word is, but it becomes a giant hit. It runs for how many years in the West End? But not the first time around. So the first time it goes into the West End, it was very, very sniffy critics. Billington saying, more or less, why is this even on stage? It was a bit of the interlopers, you know, the people that were coming down with their working class theatre and putting it into the West End and we don't really want this. It's quite an interesting story. It was taken up by very, very popular Radio 2, BBC, very middle of the ground radio station started playing Barbara Dixon Tell Me It's Not True so that song became big Tell me it's not true Say it's just a story Something on the news
But the initial show did not run and it closed after three months, I think. Willie Russell was very bruised by it. The whole company was very bruised by this complete battering that they had had in the West End, except from Time Out, a sort of a younger audience were latching onto it. And they closed it and it disappeared. And producer kept going to Willie Russell and saying, please let me do this again. Please let us do it again. And it went on tour. But he kept saying, I don't want it to go into the West End until finally Bill Kenwright and the director, Bob Thompson, persuaded him to come and see it and say, you need to see the audience reaction to this. In cities that had a big working class population, he agreed that it could go back into the West End. And it ran, I think it's 25 years. It's not that long since it closed. During the entire mega musical era, it's still there. Standing defiantly in the midst of all this excess was this one show about working class Britain that was putting, in the same way as verbatim theatre does, it was putting a real story on stage that people identified with because they didn't see it and they didn't see it anywhere else. And do you think it had a different audience from the mega musicals or how much crossover was there? I think it had a different audience in the beginning, but I think once people started going to theatre because the mega musical brought them in, Blood Brothers became another thing they went to. I often wondered what American tourists made of Blood Brothers in London. I often wondered if they understood what it was doing. I saw the Broadway production with Petula Clark. At one point it had Sean Cassidy and David Cassidy in it That's as right. the two boys, all of whom were terrific. They gave fantastic performances. But it was a little mystifying, I have to say, for an American. I didn't quite, of course, I understood the story and I understood what it was about, but it didn't connect, I think, with Americans in the same way. And I think they were smart to put stars in it so you could appreciate. And of course, they had some terrific songs in it and there was so much about it that was good. But I do have to say, for myself at least, I didn't fall in love with it or was emotionally devastated by it or anything. I think it reflected and there was huge anger in sections of the country that had lost mining, had lost the steelworks, they'd lost shipbuilding. There was huge sections of the population that were very, very angry in the 80s. And I think Blood Brothers gave voice to that. It gave voice to a section of the population that did not have a voice and certainly did not have a voice in musical theatre. Audiences in Liverpool or Newcastle or Glasgow were seeing themselves reproduced on stage in a musical in a way that they had never seen before, which is possibly why it baffled Americans. <laughs> I think so. It was very specific to the British experience. Yeah. We have class issues here as well, but they're not the same. And anyone who had lived through Thatcher absolutely understood what Willie Russell was doing and yeah. applauded it or not. And just to follow up on something you said earlier, those kinds of issues were happening in non-musical theater, were being embraced by non-musical theater and by the critics of non-musical theater. So it's really the fact that this is now being taken up by musicals that is the disconnect with the establishment and with the critics. Sure. I mean, drama at that time was absolutely searing condemnations of the government and the disenfranchise of a section of the population that was getting bigger and bigger. You know, we talk about the angry playwrights at the Royal court. You know, there's always an angry play at the Royal Court about society. And you would find that in Liverpool, in Glasgow, in Sheffield. They were producing working class drama, which was absolutely holding up a mirror to society and saying to the government, this is what you've done. Why are we accepting this? But Blood Brothers was the first time a musical had done that so openly. But it was not the last British musical, and I say British on purpose here, <laughs> to deal with that. It might have taken 20 years, but we have Billy Elliot as sort of a sequel in a way to Blood Brothers or a stepchild of some kind. Interestingly, as I said earlier, Billy Elliot was not produced at the time of the minor strike. Again, it's nostalgia. It's 20 years since the minor strike that Billy Elliot comes on scene. Once we built visions on ground we hewed We dreamt of justice and of men renewed 
And in those 20 years, there's been a refashioning of the miners' strike as something noble. And that's very important in the socialist history and the socialist context, is that it's become this noble fight that ultimately they were defeated. So that there's a very different context for Billy Elliot. And also in those 20 years, the mega musical has drawn many, many more people into theatre of a much wider class range. So people who 20 years ago would have said, theatre's not for me, unless it's the panto, were going to theatre, were going to see musicals. So you have an audience that is now watching Billy Elliot that's a completely different audience that would have watched it 20 years before because they wouldn't have watched it they would not have appreciated this refashioning of the minor strike as noble because at the time it was absolutely not depicted as that. But the people who were seeing Billy Elliot came from the generations whose parents were minors, you know, whose, whose family were minors of generations or were the shipbuilders. That was the last ship, you know, the last ship didn't go to London, but played in places in the north where those were shipbuilding families for generations that now had no shipbuilding. So there was an appreciation on a different level. And do you think that makes it less impactful or more impactful? I mean, in one way, it's being seen by a much wider audience, a much more diverse, I guess, at least in terms of a larger segment of society is seeing the show than probably saw Blood Brothers even during its 20-year run. Well, I think with Billy Elliot, Billy Elliot is an interesting one because an audience member could divorce themselves from the context of the minor strike and focus on the story of a little boy who wants to dance. But someone who had lived through the minor strike, perhaps even been a minor, will latch on to much more viscerally the opening of Act Two, which is the Working Man's Club and the parody of the government at the time. I know we've been out on strike for eight months now, but don't worry, we're going to have the best bloody Christmas party we've ever had. Hey, Santa! Water! Can you hear it in the distance? Can you sense it far away? Is it old Rudolph the Reindeer? Is it Santa on his sleigh? It's heading up to East England. It's coming down the tide. Oh, it's bloody Maggie Thatcher and Michael Heseltine. people still love that, but they're getting a very different meaning from that number than a 15, 16 year old who is engaged in the story of Billy wanting to dance, whereas the father, the grandfather, mother may be going, that's what it was like. I remember that. That's that government that we all hated and still despise. They're all getting a big dose of history in the process. Sure. But some of them may have lived through it. So have a, a visceral connection to that in the same way as I've talked about with The Last Ship. If they've lived through, if they're ex-shipbuilding families, that show has a particular resonance that it's not going to have in London or with American tourists. Or in America. It's interesting because Billy Elliot was a big hit everywhere in spite of having very specific British politics at the center of it and large segments of the show involved in things that Americans would mostly know nothing about. They, of course, know who Margaret Thatcher is and the idea of Margaret Thatcher and what she did because she was hand in hand with Reagan doing a mm. lot of the same kinds of things. You can divorce yourself from the politics of Billy Elliot and engage in the story of the little boy. The last ship is more difficult to divorce yourself from it because it's what it's about. And also, Billy Elliot had the advantage of being based on a very effective movie. And when you're writing a new story, which The Last Ship was an original story, that's a much bigger burden. I always tell students most musicals are based on something existing source material pre yeah. because it's so hard to write a story and it's so hard to write a musical. And you put those two things together and you've created a task for yourself that's almost impossible. Sure. It can be done. It's been done. But that's why it's so rare. 
there. Mm. It's really hard. So, mm. you know, and Sting as a great songwriter, but not an experienced musical theater songwriter may have suffered from that of everyone's having to create something original here mm. without a story spine that you know is going to work, even if you have to translate it into a different medium. Sure. For we'll get to the shipyards, I will end up in jail when the last ship sails. Oh, the roar of the trains and the cracking of timbers, the noise at the end of the world in your ears, as a mountain of steel makes its way to the sea, and the last ship sails. And whatever you promise, whatever you've done, and whatever the stationary life you become, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and no matter the weave of this life that you've spun, on the earth or in heaven or under the sun, when the last ship sails, The cracking of timbers, the noise at the end of the world in your ears, as a mountain of steel makes its way to the sea, and the last ship sea. Don't go away. Grace and I will be back right after this quick break. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You mentioned the absent female voice before. In fact, you title one of your chapters that. We don't hold up Broadway as being incredibly successful or filled with women creators. But I have to say, in comparison, there's nobody in British theater. And you know, I wrote a whole book about this. About the oh, I didn't. No. Oh, I have a book called Her Turn on Stage, which was not my title, which is about the place of women in musical theater. There's a few things that contribute to it. One is, and I talk about in the book, one is that... Theatre in the UK is still run mainly by white middle-class men. It's like the Tory party. You know, they were all at school together and they give each other jobs. It's not a world where women have been in the UK, apart from Joan Littlewood, who incidentally was the first woman to be nominated for a Tony as a director, director of a musical. It's a world where women don't really exist. These men have been at all-male schools. They then go to elite universities. Women are not really part of that. And I think musical theatre, there's two things with musicals. One, the irony of the lack of the female voice is, look, who goes to see them? It's women, women buy the tickets. And women are being sold and marketed to, that they're being sold a product that has a male voice all over it. And very often these shows are about women, ostensibly about women. I'm watching a show going, well, this is your version of what women are, which is nothing like myself or my friends, but everybody's buying it because there's nothing else for us to go to, which I think absolutely explains the appeal of Mamma Mia and the longevity of Mamma Mia. There's an all-female team who know exactly who they were talking to. They knew exactly who that audience was and how to tap into that. I think there is, I'd have to look it up because I can't remember her name, in the book, a United Nations investigator who said that there is a pervasive misogyny in the UK. 
Now, I think that is apparent. It's the culture of, you know, kicks like a girl, dresses like a girl. I, I think there is a misogynistic undertone, certainly in that quite upper middle class echelon. I also think that the mega musical has a lot to answer for in terms of keeping women out because societal power, a lot of it is dictated by financial power. Now, the mega musical produced such enormous profits for a handful of men. They're not going to share that. They're certainly not going to share that with women. It's a much wider societal thing. We still talk about the gender pay gap. If you have access to money, you have access to power. So keeping women out of that is deliberate. And I do think, I mean, I have written about this. I've engaged in study of it for 20 years. I don't think that the lack of a female voice in the UK musical theatre scene is coincidental. I think it is absolutely deliberate. I mean, I was very often the only female in the room, but it is deliberate. There is a belief that women can't handle a musical. Maybe it's to do with the budgets or they don't understand it. Well, the irony is it's a female audience being given an inauthentic depiction of women on stage and they accept it because there's no option. I mean, I think we talked earlier about Made in Dagenham. I mean, that is the classic example. An all-male creative team is telling a story about female empowerment. And I say in the book, We've come leaps and bounds in terms of race. We, we agree that it is no longer appropriate, it never was appropriate, for a show that is not white to be told by a bunch of creatives who are white. But it's perfectly acceptable for men to be in control of the female voice and female stories. The reason it continues in the UK is because the critics don't see musical theatre as worthy of serious interrogation as to the meanings it's producing. Of course, the big exception and possibly the only exception to what we were just talking about is Mamma Mia. And you mentioned that earlier, but that is entirely the creation of a female team and very much about things that are of concern to women that women can readily, clearly identify with. I've produced that show. I've seen that show. Women go crazy for it. And what is baffling is that Mamma Mia spawned endless jukebox musicals, but it didn't open the door for any creative women to enter musical theatre. You'd think that producers would go, they know something that we don't, bring them in. But no. And I think it has got worse. It's got far worse. Part of the problem in musical theatre in the UK not being regarded as culturally significant is that this is not interrogated by the critics. If the National put on a play with an all-male, all-white creative team, a critic would pull them up for it. But musical theatre is not regarded. Who cares is the attitude. Whereas you're seeing time and time again all-male, all-white creative teams on musical theatre in the UK and no one picks up on it. No one comments on it. But if it was an all-white team in charge of a black story, that wouldn't happen. But it's perfectly acceptable right. to have men in charge of women's stories and voices. And no one seems to think that there's anything wrong with this. And I do talk about something that no one picks up on except Frank Rich way, way, way back in the days of Starlight Express. There is a, a veil of misogyny that underlines Andrew Lloyd Webber's work that no one ever picks up. No one, no one discusses. I think we're all aware of it, but no one actually calls anybody to account for it. I mean, the fact that in a 40-year career, he's worked with one female director and two book writers. And Cameron would be the same. The National has not had a woman in charge of a musical on the main stage. So it's not coincidental. And I also have to say that the female characters at the center of those shows are in great contrast, I think, to the women in American musicals. In my course, I just spent a whole day talking about the one of the major themes of the Broadway musical is transgressive women, women at the center of shows who do not do what society wants them to do in the time period of the story or even the time period of when the musical was made, that the musical was always centering itself around these women who are quite astounding when you put them all together. You look at 40 shows mm -hmm. that all do the same thing. Exceptions to that are the British musicals. Well, you've got Mrs. Johnson and Blood Brothers, which is 1982. And then you have 20 years later, you have Donna and Mamma Mia, which is 20 years later. That's it. Yeah. I argue that that is an absolute result of an all-male team. Whether it is deliberate or not, the women do not have agency. I mean, for me, the most recent example would be everybody's talking about Jamie. But you go, here's this character that's fine, that's all that story, but the women around him have absolutely no agency, completely conforming to outdated tropes. I mean, I think Stacey Wolf talks about that with Hamilton, saying because there's such strides taken in how we're approaching race, we are failing to notice that the women are completely irrelevant to the story and actually we're just reproducing outdated victim narratives and no one picks up on it. And of course, all the shows that I'm talking about also played in London. Most of them were giant hits during the last 
hundred years. And yet somehow that didn't rub off. That's so interesting. For the other book I wrote, I interviewed the late, great Gillian Lynn. And she said to me, she said, I, I do believe that men in England don't really like women. And I thought that was very interesting. I would tend to agree. I also think it is another aspect of the class divide. When you've got a sort of boys club, an exclusive white boys club, that door is not going to open to women. Even now, it still doesn't. I mean, the Almeida just did Tammy Faye Baker, all-male creative group, all-male band, telling a story about a woman. And I'm going, well, are you really the right person to tell that story? I would dispute that you are, as I am not the right person to tell a story about Bob Marley. So we understand that, but the gender one doesn't matter. That's Cinderella. Cinderella is the catty name that they call me. So sad, Cinderella. She's a loner, she's a loon, a loser, that's all me. Go from the gutter, unpleasant peasant, no one in nutter, unwelcome present. Cruel taunts you mutter, every insult that you utter makes me strong. Call me bad Cinderella, nasty girl, gutter rose. Your unkindness doesn't show. You have an entire chapter, as would be expected, about Andrew Lloyd Webber mm. and about his long history. You know, you have to give him credit. It's an amazing history of what he has been able to do. And yet, in some ways, he's the opposite of what the topic of your book is about, mm. because you contend his shows do not reflect the national identity of Britain and not really of England either. No, and actually, his refusal to engage in that debate is interesting in itself. The stories are grand sweep narratives, the only time that he twice sort of went near British identity was The Beautiful Game, which was, well, there's a whole other issue about The Beautiful Game, which is him being establishment in England, telling a story about Northern Ireland, Catholics, possibly not the best person to tell it. And then the Stephen Ward musical. And let's just make sure everybody understands those shows, because those shows, of course, didn't come to the United States. The Beautiful Game is centered around football, right? Soccer. The Beautiful Game was 2000, and it, it was set in Northern Ireland and focused on mm-hmm. a Catholic football team. But it was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Ben Elton, neither of whom are Northern Irish or Catholic, at a time where the troubles were only, we were only, I think, two or three years beyond the Good Friday Agreement. It was possibly not the right time to be telling that story, and they were not the right people to tell that story. (laughs) And it became what I argue is an English view of one of the smaller nations without ever actually engaging with that nation. It was cultural appropriation at its worst, I feel. That's my my opinion. (laughs) Then Stephen Ward. The Perfumo Affair was a political scandal from the 60s, where a cabinet minister had been having an affair with, do I say call girl? Yes. Who was also having an affair with a Russian spy and ended up he had to resign. And I think we saw that in one of the episodes of The Crown. Well, it's rehashed and rehashed and rehashed. Everybody knows the Perfumo Affair. My issue, of course, is that we never see it from the girl's point of view, that those two young women, their lives were ruined, completely ruined, and they were dismissed as money-seeking, you know, the worst of society, whereas they were completely manipulated by Stephen Ward, and this musical was basically putting a case forward for Stephen Ward, who was brought to court and was never tried because he killed himself, but was brought to court for soliciting. And the book it was based on, I actually got it here, How the English Establishment Framed Stephen Ward is by Caroline Kennedy and Philip Knightley, so it was Americans, that was sort of making a case that the establishment got off because they blamed Stephen Ward for it. And you go, well, they were all particularly unpleasant people. That was Andrew Lloyd Webber's sort of one foray into let's reflect British society. But again, it's 50 years ago that scandal happened. It's been told and told. And I don't know what the point of was retelling it. It didn't last very long. He's very English establishment. He ingratiated himself with the royal family. He has a title. He sat in the House of Lords. It's sort of everything that is the antithesis of Catholic Northern Ireland for a start. 
does he reflect British society? No, I don't think he does. I think I say in the book, possibly his most authentic reflection of British society was his requiem. Certainly a British ecclesiastical tradition, a choral tradition. And what about Cats? It's based on a set of poems that in America we don't know anything about. So I assume those poems have some place in the hearts of British people of a certain generation, at least. I don't know. I can't answer that because I certainly was not aware of them. But I grew up in Scotland. I knew T.S. Eliot was, but I don't know that they are ingrained in British society as Alice in Wonderland is. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He certainly made them popular. I, I, I could be wrong. I just assumed that was a popular childhood memory that he that other people shared. No, I mean, I, I would have thought it would be A.A. Milne, it would be Winnie the Pooh, it would be Beatrix Potter before that. I don't know. I could be wrong. I yeah, certainly have never heard of them. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> now and forever, David. <laughs> now and forever. <laughs> Exactly. It didn't quite go that long, but almost. Oh, <laughs> I remember I lived in New York during all the 80s and the 90s and that giant oh. above the Winter Garden Theater where yes. they have the largest billboard in New York. And it just said now and forever, therefore, yeah. what seemed like forever. Yeah, we thought it was to, a joke. To the point where you believed it might happen. Yeah. yeah. No, when um, it first went up, people were like, we're rolling their eyes. And it's like, well, I guess they knew something we didn't know. Utterly. The thing with Lloyd Webber is, yes, you could say he rescued the British musical from obscurity. But did he also then create a monster which is now very difficult for us to get beyond because he's so inexorably linked with the British musical? So what is the future of the British musical? What do you see? Andrew Lloyd Webber is on his way out. Who knows how soon? He, he could very well write another giant hit. But, you know, both he and Cameron Mackintosh are of a certain age and are probably winding down their careers Certainly based on the lack of success of Bad Cinderella, it will be interesting to see if he has an opportunity to come back after that. Well, you see, I don't believe either of those men are winding down. I think the grip is as ferociously tight as ever. And I end the book by talking about, oh, I think it was Britain's Got Talent. And then it was just after lockdown and Cameron's going on saying, you know, the British musical is back. It was all his shows. There wasn't anything he hadn't produced that was a segment. And I, I don't think either of them have any any intention of going quietly into the night. I think they will keep their hold on theatres, which affects, as I said earlier, affects what shows go on. They will keep reproducing, not even reinventing, just redoing the old shows. I mean, Saigon is about to come to Australia at the Opera House. I, I cannot see a time when Les Mis is not open. Phantom is still on in London. I don't think they're going anywhere. And I think that without those gates being opened to other voices, and that there seems to be no sign of that happening. I mean, the RSC did The Boy in the Dress, which, again, all white, all male creative team. Nothing's changing in the British musical. And nobody's demanding change. That's the sad thing. And there's nobody waiting in the wings that you can identify as even the potential future. No, I could be wrong. And I'm probably way out of the loop. But I'm not aware of any of the rep companies, apart from Sheffield and Jamie, producing new work that is going to make an impact. That's another issue I bring up in the book is that the regional theatres, what we call the rep companies, are creating work to appeal to a very specific audience. Now, the audience in Sheffield, which produced Everybody's Talking About Jamie, is a very, very different audience to the audience at Chichester, which produced Flowers for Mrs. Harris. Two completely opposite poles of the class spectrum. Either of those produce work that goes into the West End, it's only representative of a very particular brand of society or section of society. So there is that issue as well. The Proclaimers musical in Scotland is not going to make money in the West End. Americans would be even more baffled by that one. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know what the future is. I think maybe the future is going back, certainly in Scotland, going back to the play with music. I mean, you could argue that was Warhorse. Yes, it certainly felt like a musical. But was billed as a play. It, it was a play, but the experience of it, certainly the visual experience of it, the staging of it felt like a musical to a great extent. Well, I was resident director on Warhorse. The person who wrote the music, John Tams, came out to rehearsal. And I mean, he absolutely comes from that socialist folk music tradition, which is very evident in Warhorse. I think maybe that will come. I mean, I think the huge success of Girl from the North Country, even though technically it's not British, I mean, he's Irish and Bob Dylan right. is American, but that to me is a play with music. And struck a chord with British audiences in a way it didn't really in America. Oh, interestingly really? Interestingly enough. 
Yeah, it was not terribly successful on Broadway. I think it was a big success in Chicago, I think is where it came from. But it was last season on Broadway and only ran a few months. Of course, Phantom now is closed on Broadway. There's no Andrew Lloyd Webber show on Broadway anymore for the first time in 40-something years. So I think my perspective is going to be different than sitting there in the UK and seeing that still dominance of the West End. Les Mis is still running. Les Mis hasn't been running in New York for 20 years. It's also had an impact on what the British audience expect from a British musical. They expect either a jukebox mm-hmm. show or they expect this huge extravaganza. Everybody's talking about Jamie, I think is a grandchild of Blood Brothers. Very modest show in that regard. And also it's set in working class Sheffield. You know, that school is the antithesis of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It's been taken up by a younger audience in a way. I mean, I think the show, to me, is hugely problematic because of its treatment of women. But it has become a major hit. It is reflecting a section of society that does not usually have a voice in the British musical, which may account for its success. One other show that people might point to as the future, certainly a giant hit in both the West End and Broadway right now, is Six, which I know you are not a big fan of. Well, my argument with Six is twofold. One, I would dispute the term musical. I don't think that is a musical. It's a concert. There's no script. There's no delineation between the characters. The songs do not move. There is no plot for the songs to move on. My bigger beef with Six is that I dispute its feminist credentials. I don't think that is a feminist voice. I don't think it's an authentic female voice either. And I think that what keeps getting ignored is that at its inception, there were more men than women on the creative team. That is not an authentic female voice. To me, Six is hugely problematic in terms of if that's the British musical, God help us. I think it's become a huge hit in the UK. I think it is is an exercise in box ticking. It's very, very useful to present a front of, look how open we are, look at all the women in musical theatre. Whereas if you actually analyse how those women are portrayed, they're all over-sexualised victims. But I cannot deny that women love it. I don't know why. I don't get it. Some of the music is very catchy. I don't get it that they're being presented with over-sexualized victims and told this is feminism. It's that blurring between visibility equals agency. I don't think it does in the case of Six. I don't think any woman is being empowered by Six, although the audience are. I can't deny that. And it may be the same issue, because since each of those queens is based on a pop star, a big, you know, their persona and their style of dress and the way they sing, it's the same issue. Why are those giant superstar pop stars inspiring to women? That's the reference point for each of them. You know, what's interesting about Six, when it was originally produced, the women wore jeans and T-shirts. They were, they were absolutely androgynous. And to me, that was far more empowering than when you have these hyper-sexualized females male bodies on stage saying this is feminism and going, ooh, is it? Is that power or is that what men want to see? I think you're playing into what men want to see, but that's a whole <laughs> other issue. But I do I do dispute that it's a musical. I don't think you can say that that's a musical in the way that Hamilton's a musical. I'm sorry. I actually think it's a concept musical and it's very much along the lines of, you can sort of trace a line from a chorus line to Cats to Six, which basically all have a very similar form and all have a sort of contest at the center of them, which I think is 
germane to a chorus line and weird in cats and even weirder in six. But even in cats, <laughs> the cats had different personalities. We knew who they were. If you just listened to the song, you'd think <laughs> the same person was singing it and sick. There's no real delineation of the character. We can talk about overamplification and all those kinds of things. So give us some hope. Can we end on some hope for the British musical theater? Is there anything that you are, and there may not be, I don't, you don't need Maybe to there have, is no hope. have to end. Um, is there hope? God, I hope so. I think if, if there was a return to the play with music, I think it's depressing that there is no real diverse voice. Although one show we didn't talk about was Bend It Like Beckham. That to me was real hope for the British musical. And a wonderful alignment between Asian artists and British artists and a fusion that was beautiful and a female voice. So describe that show for us. Well, it was a film, which I'm not sure if it was big in America. The film was very popular in America. Yeah, people know the film. And it, it deals with the second generation immigrant family. And in Britain, there is a big Asian population because it, it was the ties with the Commonwealth, ties with India. It, it shows the Indian society in London, which we never see on stage. And it's two girls, two best friends, an Asian girl and her white best friend who play football. They play football for a girls team. So there's the issue of girls in sport, which is still should girls be playing football. But there's also it's not something that nice Asian girls do. They don't play football. They get married. So there's all those conflicts going on within a community that is so British, that second generation London Asian community, but which we rarely see. With the creative team, there was a, a real awareness of this is a structure. This is a, a form that has been invented uh, within, you know, a white theatrical paradigm, but how do we include the Asian voice? And there was a real acknowledgement before all the diversity box ticking was going. This was a genuine, authentic, how do we make this sound both British and both Asian? How do we make this appeal to both populations? And it's a bit like Billy Elliot. You can engage in the story of the two girls without having that background context of the immigrant community. Or you can go with the immigrant community going, this is the first time I've seen this. This is an absolute authentic retelling. But it has never been seen outside of London. And I think that's one of the problems. Why isn't one of the rec companies doing Bend Up Like Beckham? Yes, and why isn't it touring? It seems like why a isn't it never touring to tour. Yeah, never tour. I do know of a couple of theatres in America that were trying to do it. Also, that had, again, that had Howard Goodall. Now, Howard Goodall, I mentioned very early on, was the hired man. Howard Goodall, I believe, is the great British musical theatre composer who got kind of suffocated by the mega musical and went on often did other things. But if you listen to the soundtrack of Bendit Like Beckham, you can hear that these are people who know exactly what the musical form is and what it's supposed to do. Love the feeling once you're ready to rest, you risk having nothing to show. We did end with a positive note. We did end with a positive and note. Something for myself is to get to know that musical much better than I do. Mm. And I suspect a lot of the listeners will do so as well. What would be your go-to British musical? 
you're talking recent shows or the big mega shows or um, no? What would what would be a musical for you that you go that is quintessentially British? I see. Yeah. Oliver. It's probably Oliver. Oliver. I would say Me and My Girl. Actually, and I only saw that revival, which is in a way part of the mega musical era mm. because I think it came to Broadway because of all the Brit hits happening. But I thought the show was completely delightful, and the comedy aspect of it was really, really funny and reflected that musical sensibility. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And I think that's got lost, which is a pity. Yeah. And he was sensational mm. in that. Robert Lindsay. Robert Lindsay was phenomenal mm. in it. So great. But it's a long time ago. That's the problem. That was a long time ago. That's been 30 years ago, hasn't it? Yeah. 40. 40. Wow. Anyway, thank you, Grace Barnes. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you about national identity and the British musical from Blood Brothers to Cinderella. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Likewise. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.